This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, October the 31st, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Sometimes I look at myself on camera and I think to myself, who dressed you this morning? And the answer is me. The collar of my pink polo shirt is like everywhere, all over my vest today, looking a little slothingly on a Monday. You know what? That's my costume. Poorly dressed TV show host. Coming up on this Halloween edition of Now with Dave Brown, Mark Aflalo will show off that some companies are offering employees unlimited. It is Halloween, so why not offer up a Dahmer story? That and so much more coming your way on this edition of the show. But first, let's get to our top story of the day. Organizers of the Freedom Convoy are expected to appear at the Emergencies Act inquiry this week. Emily Javesky looks ahead. Several of the key organizers due to testify are still facing criminal charges related to their involvement in the convoy protest. Keith Wilson, a lawyer representing organizers, has previously said that his clients are eager to talk about why they came to Ottawa last winter and why they believe the Emergencies Act was unnecessary. The act temporarily granted new powers to police to block off sections of the city and compelled tow truck companies to remove vehicles. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. Let's get to a cost-of-living story. A Canada-wide survey shows people in the prairie provinces were most likely to have used food banks or a community fridge as food costs rise. The survey by the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan found nearly 20% of people were also reducing meal sizes or skipping them altogether to save money. Laurie O'Connor says these numbers are in line with previous peaks. Numbers of folks using the food bank are not only back to pre-pandemic levels, but back to sort of uh, 2016 levels when we were experiencing our highest um, usage numbers. Quebec showed a significant positive result in regards to food security compared to the prairies, with 95% of respondents there saying they could afford to eat a balanced diet. And of course, there is a interest rate component to this beyond inflation. So let's hear from the governor of the Bank of Canada. As the Bank of Canada continues to raise interest rates, Governor Tiff Macklem says he's feeling the pressure. Macklem notes these moments come with scrutiny. You know, when the decisions are tough uh, and you know, there's a lot of focus on the Bank of Canada, we're, you know, we're under a lot of scrutiny. Um, lots of people are giving us advice on what we should do. Um, and that's fine. Um, they should be asking us tough questions, but there's a reason we have independent central banks. Macklem elaborated further on the central bank's independence. I, I do not have any concerns about the bank's independence being under threat. Um, I think the, the uh, yes, we're getting lots of tough questions. Uh, people should be asking us tough questions. Um, but I have felt no no threat to our independence. 
Let's shift into a climate story. A group of doctors are warning that Canada's healthcare system is not prepared for impacts related to climate change. Rob Westgate explains. Montreal family doctor Claudel Petron de Rocher sees climate change as an all-encompassing risk amplifier threatening air quality and access to food and water. She's just one of the authors of a policy brief on climate health risk here in Canada. Co-author Finola Hackett, a locum physician in southern Alberta, says ignoring climate-related health risks would be costly in terms of both dollars and lives, but taking action now could prevent disease and death. Both say the healthcare system has the potential to mitigate climate-related health risks, but it's far from ready. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. That's a look at some Canadian stories, but I've got one more story for you from south of the border, where the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing cases related to affirmative action in post-secondary education. Sagar McGanny has more. It's another test of whether the court's conservative majority will move the law to the right. The cases involve challenges to University of North Carolina and Harvard programs that consider an applicant's race, among other factors. Lower courts have rejected claims that the programs discriminated against white and Asian American applicants. The high court itself has twice upheld race-conscious college admissions programs in the past two decades, but the bench looks different now with three Trump appointees, plus the court's first black woman, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She will sit out the Harvard case because she recently was a member of an advisory governing board. Sagar Magani, Washington. Let's move over to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you what kind of transportation would you like governments to invest in. 62% of you said public transit. 0% of you said highways. 0% of you said electric vehicles. And 38% of you said high-speed trains. Today's daily poll. It is indeed Halloween, so we thought we'd have a little bit of fun. What is the best part of Halloween? Costumes, candy, scary entertainment, or nothing. Maybe you say bah humbug to Halloween. Let's bring in someone who is in costume. It's Mike Ross. Mike, before you answer the question, you have to describe the costume. I sure will. I'm Krusty the Clown, and I'm Krusty because, well, it's Monday, and I'm just an angry, crusty old guy. So that's how I'm, I'm not doing my Krusty the Clown voice. I'm doing Krusty the Clown the clown. So I have a rainbow colored wig on. I'm wearing a red nose. I have a blue shirt on and I'm wearing a giant uh, bow tie with blue, red, orange, and green polka dots on it and a yellow background. And I'm wearing my glasses as well. So I am a clown, Dave. People say I'm a character. People say I'm a clown. Today, (laughs) I get to make it come true. Today, you get to rock the look. So Mike, does that give me a bit of a preview into your answer to this question? Do you think costumes are the best part of Halloween? I think so, Um, if only because, I mean, as a kid, it was always just such a big deal about what you were going to dress up as. And and in fact, for a lot of us, is what were our parents going to actually allow us to buy or to what were they going to buy for us? Uh, I can think back to, I think it was probably about 1978-ish, where (coughs) a friend and I... Uh, our parents bought us the Donnie and Marie costumes. So we were oh the Oh my Osmonds. gosh. Oh my so gosh. So so it had like the old, you know, the the old plastic uh, face mask uh with the little elastic tied to it and it had this sort of plasticky um uh, vinyl costume like very thin 
but really not breathable that you sort of wore as a smock. And it was like a 70s outfit. So we were Donnie and Marie. Um, and then as you got older, well, then it just got boring and it became about the candy and became about the fun and hanging around with your friends. And then I found that when I met my wife, uh, we were going out, we would go to Halloween parties and it was cool to find uh, sort of themed couple costumes. So I can remember being the scarecrow to her Dorothy. I can remember being the fireman to her Dalmatian. Um, so we had some <laughs> cool costumes over the years. So the candy's all right, but you can get candy all year round. Uh, the uh, the dressing up and, and going to parties and stuff like that is uh, is what it really, to me, is all about. Yeah, that is correct. I can go buy discounted candy tomorrow. Although when you're a kid, yes. complimentary candy does seem like a really cool it's thing. It's not a bad deal. You're not right. Not a bad deal at all. Yeah. Let's go over to Eliza Rocco. Eliza, last week as we were talking about the spirit of Halloween, you mentioned that your cat was already wearing costumes. <laughs> is that your answer on this, or do you have a different answer for our daily poll question? I, If I could choose all of these things, I would, um, but I'm going to have to go with costumes as well. As I said last week, I'm a huge costume person, and I, I think about for months, if not a year, before Halloween actually starts, what am I going to dress up as? As I said last time, what is my cat's going to dress up as. It's, uh, it, it's a long-held debate in my mind before <laughs> Halloween. So costumes, um, November 1st is the day for candy. That is the day. That's, that's yeah. what November yeah. 1st is for. The, that's what I'll be doing tomorrow morning before coming into work, getting the, a big, big bowl of candy when the, when the 90 packs of the Halloween candy gets on sale for like 50% of the price tomorrow, the little mini chocolate bars, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. That is my time to shine, Dave. Well, we do live right across from it, or we don't live. We work right across. I feel like I live here sometimes. We do work <laughs> right across from a major retailer that will certainly have some of that discounted mm -hmm. candy tomorrow morning mm -hmm. that's open 24 hours a day. So you can swoop in there early and really take oh, advantage I will. of the deals. I will, there you Dave. go. All right. Rock and roll. <laughs> Something to look forward to tomorrow. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. And a little bit later in the show, We'll talk to Mike and Nazarene and maybe get Eliza's opinion, too, about the best Halloween candies, the salty, the chocolate, and the sweets. So we'll all get to that a little bit later in the show at about uh, 10.30 a.m. Eastern time. I have some hot takes, and you will hear them. Or you won't, because maybe you'll tune away. You shouldn't, though, because there's all kinds of good stuff coming your way, including Mike Ross with the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. I think we can make November 1st Halloween Boxing Day. We need to rebrand it. I now. like that. That's good. Halloween Boxing Day or Unboxing Day, whichever way you want to go. But yeah, uh, we're going to begin in St. John's, Newfoundland today, Dave, with your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. In St. John's, it's going to be mainly sunny with a high of 14 degrees. Halifax, Nova Scotia, sunny and a high of 16 degrees. It'll be a nice day in Montreal, sun and a few clouds, a high of 15 degrees. Ottawa, great day for trick-or-treating. Mix of sun and cloud and a high of 14 degrees. Toronto will be cloudy, 60% chance of showers there and a high of 11. Let's go to Thunder Bay next, where it'll be mainly sunny with a high of 14. But this morning as you head out, there's a wind chill of about minus 6. Winnipeg, sunny and a high of 14. Let's go to Saskatoon next. A mix of sun and cloud and a high of 9 degrees. Chilly in Calgary this morning, though the uh, skies will clear up late in the morning, and you've got a high of 7. Edmonton, 
Mix of sun and cloud, a high of 9 degrees, though a wind chill this morning as you head out of minus 5. Let's go to Yellowknife next. Cloudy with a 30% chance of flurries. Some periods of light snow in the afternoon. The temperature steady near minus 11. There will be a wind chill near minus 18. In Vancouver, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 12 degrees. And finally, Victoria, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers, your high 12 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. We'll talk to Mike a little bit later in the show. But coming up next, Michelle McQuig will be here with some insight on a couple of other major news stories that emerged over the weekend. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We had a whole bunch of news stories in the first segment of the show, but there is so much happening in the world that we need some more insight on even more stories. So let's bring in Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, solidarity protests with people in Iran were held across Canada over the weekend. I know there's a political angle to get into here in a moment, but let's start with the demonstrations themselves. What was the scale and what was the key message? Sure. So uh, I'm sure a lot of you are aware that there have been a huge, there's been a tremendous amount of unrest in Iran over the past six weeks since the death of Masa Amini in mid-September. Uh, what happened here in Canada over the weekend was a, quote, human chain protest, which basically just meant cities across Canada, 10 of them, plus a number all around the world, were joining in in solidarity with the protest movement in Iran that are demanding the overthrow of the theocratic government out there, uh, calling for rights for women, uh, a lot of Masa Amini uh, name chanting and, and shows of solidarity for her. And here in Canada, of course, it was all organized by a group that has uh, a lot to say about the regime in Iran with very personal reasons behind them. These are the, the families of those who were killed in the crash of, do you remember PS Flight 752? That would be Ukrainian the- Ukrainian Airlines, yeah. Exactly. That would be the airliner that was shot down by the Iranian government in Iran. Uh, there was a huge Canadian connection with that flight. There were at least 55 Canadian citizens, a number of others who were not necessarily citizens, but who had really strong ties here. They were maybe studying here. They had partners here. A lot of them were bound for Canada. So um, those families have gotten quite vocal in, in recent years about calling for, for retribution for Iran, for their actions. And certainly uh, they wanted to show their solidarity for the protests and for the social unrest that are happening there and calls for reform. So here comes the political angle. There's been a high profile open letter being signed. What is the letter calling for and who signed it? Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. Uh, a, a letter came out yesterday, it, it published in the New York Times, and it was signed by a really honestly fierce uh, cadre of women all around the world. In, the Canadian connections included Christy Freeland, Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, um, Nazrin Afshinjan, who's, who's a pretty well-known human rights activist, and she's the wife of, of Peter McKay. Kim Campbell, the former prime minister, also signed. Those are the Canadians. Uh, they were calling for Iran's removal from a UN committee on the status of women, uh, which they recently joined a few years ago. Um the Canadian women and a number of others around the world, and we're talking some big names like Oprah, Michelle Obama, Malala, um, Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand, so some seriously powerful ladies, 
are all essentially decrying the fact that Iran is even included on this committee and calling for the UN uh, to remove them immediately. Uh, the other political dimension here, of course, is that during those protests that were taking place on Saturday, there were a number of calls to sever ties with Iran diplomatically and whatnot. And in a total surprise move, we only got a couple hours notice of it ourselves, uh, Justin Trudeau joined in the human chain protest in Ottawa. Yeah, and he uh, he called for significant, more significant sanctions as well, that the government was going to be announcing some of that, although some of that's unclear as to precisely what he was calling for. There was actually a sound, yeah. there was actually a sound clip that was gathered that I actually don't want to play because it actually sounded a little bit fear-mongering and fear-baiting that we're going to track down those people in Canada who were part of the regime. Made me a little uncomfortable. Fair enough, yeah. Um, and, and yet there are still, uh, there are critiques leveled at this government for not doing what they perceive as enough to yeah. sever ties with Iran and condemn their actions over PS752. So mm-hmm. it is a very uh, an interesting issue and it's gotten thornier and more pressing in light of all the upheaval that's going on in Iran because yeah. it's very significant. We're talking about hundreds of people killed in six weeks of protests, mm-hmm. thousands of arrests, major crackdowns. Uh, it, it's It's pretty volatile and pretty ugly over there right now. Michelle, let's come a little closer to home here in Ontario, where there's been labor strife brewing in the province with education support workers and a possible strike. And this has been developing for weeks. And I know there was a major development late yesterday. But what is the status (laughs) of a possible strike? Well, uh, funny you should ask, because we really don't know at this moment. The temperature got turned up in a big, big way yesterday. The Cold Notes version is that the union representing the province's education workers, we're not talking teachers, it's important to distinguish this, we're talking about, you know, educational assistants, early childhood educators, custodians, uh, the support staff, essentially. Um, they gave a five-day strike notice yesterday, indicating that they could, they would be going on strike province-wide, full withdrawal of services as of Friday. Enter the provincial government, who announced pretty late last night that they were going to try to preempt that strike by introducing some legislation that would stop it from even happening in the first place. The union behind this, CUPE, uh, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, has indicated they intend to fight this legislation hard. I'm not entirely sure how, if that can be accomplished in light of the fact that it's a pretty strong majority government at the moment. Uh, So in terms of the status of the strike, that's very much up in the air at the moment, but I I do suspect that the legislation will manage to go through and preempt the strike. That does not, however, mean that the fight is over. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kind of thing has happened before. And in the past, in fact, there were there were some court reparations granted when a government introduced legislation that uh, shut down collective bargaining effectively. And I suspect that the legislation that might be tabled today, which is the plan, might potentially go even further. So I'll be curious to see how they intend to navigate that. But right now, there's a lot of open questions around uh, what's going to be happening with schools in this province at the end of the week. And let's finish on more of a national story. We got a report about secrecy at the RCMP and how the force should handle sensitive information. Michelle, this one can get pretty deep into the woods pretty quickly, but what's at issue in this report? Yeah, so the very high level, I'll try to keep it as as simple as I can. My colleague Jim Bronskill managed to churn out a a thousand words on this because it's that complex and and, and in the weeds, as you say. But basically, this report was commissioned after a very senior RCMP employee, Cameron Ortis, you've probably heard the name in the news some, was arrested for a number of alleged security breaches that have not been tested in court. But this was a review ordered by the commissioner of the security culture at the RCMP. 
and it has taken a very long time for us to get our hands on it. But the findings that came out, even from the portions of the report that were released to us, a lot of it was redacted, indicate that there is major security gaps and the the review is calling for a total overhaul of the security culture, even up to the highest levels. Uh, it's a very quick example of just some of the alleged breaches or, or gaps that this review found. They're saying that security awareness training was not mandatory at the RCMP and the training that did exist was out of date. It's mm. kind of bananas for a national police force. Um, it found that there was, quote, a pervasive attitude that security restrictions, that security restrictions were something that needed to be worked around to get the job done. Uh, apparently, there was a lack of standards on information technology, including portable storage devices. So no mm -hmm. IT policies mm -hmm. around that kind of thing. Uh, there was a sense that employees were reluctant to report security incidents because they were afraid of consequences to themselves or their colleagues. So pretty fundamental gaps in, in security there. And there were 43 recommendations tabled in this report. A lot of them are, are fairly technical, but essentially it's calling for a very significant uh, overhaul to yeah. the, the whole culture of security at that force. Considering how much sensitive information would be held in those hallways and in those computers and in those databases, you definitely want to be careful. And it's not uncommon to see these reviews of major institutions. There was just one done in Manitoba by the Auditor General in regards to their health institution that said there were a lot of important files that weren't even password protected, that anybody could just walk in and grab files from shared computers. Yeah, it's very similar, and and it really makes you realize how how many assumptions are in place at the public level as to what the security practices at supposedly confidential organizations are supposed to be like. Uh, another one that kind of raises the eyebrows is that apparently uh, clearance, security clearance, was being given almost at random when people didn't really need it. Mm -hmm. uh, something mm -hmm. again, you you assume that when someone has top secret clearance that they've gone through this whole process and they've earned it, and and there's been a whole vetting apparatus in place. Not so, according to this review. So it's it's interesting. Michelle, thank you for this. Always great catching up. Have a nice week, and we'll talk to you on Friday for the news panel. Sounds great. Have a good week, everybody. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press. Coming up next, some companies are offering employees unlimited paid time off. We'll explore that model and discuss the importance of time off with Kelly Braun Johnson. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. Despite a few sector-based declines on Friday, Canada's main stock index finished in the green last week. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 119 points, closing at 19,471. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed 829 points to 32,862. That's up almost 2.6%. The Nasdaq, it rose 2.87% or 310 points to close at 11,102. Overseas this morning, Japan's Nikkei finished up 482 points at 27,587. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, ahead of closing, it was down around 140 points. Looking forward in the business world this week, home sales figures are due out starting Tuesday with Calgary, as well as a fall economic statement Thursday and labor force survey numbers Friday. As for the loonie, it's trading this morning at 73.39 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. There are two things in this universe that are infinite, space and time. There are also two things in this universe that you'll never have enough of, space and time. Before I wander down a physics rabbit hole, something that many employees feel is a lack of paid time off, whether it be to get away for weeks or just unplug for a day. Time off is a critical piece of work-life balance. Let's talk about this with the founder of Completely Inclusive, Kelly Braun Johnson. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Dave. Kelly, let's start here. How important is time off and even more specifically paid time off for employees? Well, really apropos that you're asking this question, I'm getting over a cold. So <laughs> I, I've had to take a little bit of time off for myself. Um, but, you know, first of all, rest is, is super important for everyone. We live in this capitalistic society that, uh, you know, people have got this idea now that we, everybody has to be productive and we don't value rest anymore. But rest is, is really important. But the, the conflict, I think, is that people are, uh, you know, our cost of living is going up and people don't feel like they even have a choice to take time off, to take any unpaid days off. It's not possible in their budget. Um, and I think that's um, a real serious problem right now. Kelly, you mentioned that you're getting over a cold. I'm in the middle of one right now. Uh, people might think of paid time off strictly in terms of vacation days, but how important are paid sick days? How, do, how, do the, how does that factor into this conversation? Well, you know, we also know that, especially with physical jobs, that tired people can't work as efficiently and, and tired people actually aren't safe. They're, they have more accidents. Um, so if you're, if you're sick, you're recovering from something or you just haven't rested enough, you just simply haven't slept enough, um, that's, it can be a hazard in the workplace. Um, and I, I hope that by now people have started to learn about the value of protecting other people at work. We really shouldn't go in sick. Um, but I know, again, that conflict, people who are on an hourly wage, people who don't have hours that are guaranteed, um, they're having, they feel they have no choice. They have to go in or they're working, you know, part-time job. Often people that work part-time jobs work more than one part-time job. Mm. So even if they're sick, they're still going to pick the one that has the higher pay and they're still going to go in and they're going to sacrifice, um, their health and their recovery and other people's health too. Right. Let's come back to vacation time. Some companies offer things like unlimited paid time off for their employees. Kelly, on the surface, sign me up for that. That sounds great. But there have to be some drawbacks to this model, right? So actually, from studies so far, from companies that do offer unlimited uh, paid time off or unlimited vacation, um, people are not taking their vacation. There's still this intense pressure uh, that they feel they have to be present, that they um, are scared that they're not going to look productive, that they're going to look lazy. Um, and so I think the kind of the balance to do this, I mean, yes, it has to come from the top down where they have to say, you have to take your time, you have to take some time. Um, and I feel that if a company is going to implement something like unlimited time off, they also have to implement a minimum number mm -hmm. of days that every employee has to take. Kelly, I think about the model a lot because back when I was a real journalist, I remember I was a reporter for a local news station and they sent me to a tech company that offered that. And the owner told me, well, yeah, we offer unlimited paid time off. The only thing we ask is don't leave your coworkers in a bind. But it's almost impossible to think about it in that context because in the majority of companies, you're always working on something. Yeah. 
So that's the thing is that management has to kind of institute some sort of policy or uh, something about disconnecting, really, and about yeah. that you're not responsible for your coworkers' workloads as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That like backfill needs to be figured out in a in a sustainable way. Kelly, how would you describe work culture around allowing employees to truly unplug or disconnect while they're off work? I remember once a manager asked me to attend a meeting while I was on vacation, and I was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, it would be really great if you could join us for this meeting. There's going to be some really cool stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I'm, but I'm on vacation. No. <laughs> and, and that's it. I think there have to be these really strict policies where, uh, you know, I know some places where after 5 p.m., no one is expected to answer any emails uh, on weekends, especially not supposed to answer any emails. Um, and so if we have this rule, no exceptions. So that means that it means that one person, even if they do make a mistake and they send something after five, nobody can respond. It's really important that it comes again from the, the, the management, from the leadership to say, this, we don't do this here. This is not how we work. Other places you might have been before, you might have felt burned. Um, that's how we did it there, but that's not how we do things here. So no answering of emails or calls after five, no expectations, nothing on the weekend, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at that. <laughs> I'm very bad at that. Uh, Kelly, you are an entrepreneur. And oftentimes one of the things that goes along with being an entrepreneur is that expectation of availability of 24-7. Are you good at disconnecting while you're on vacation? I have the most amazing boundaries. I disappear. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I don't give my um, I don't give my clients my personal phone number. So um, I disconnect everything. I turn off notifications on my phone, so I don't get email notifications. So even if you are emailing me, too bad, so sad. Um, the only thing that I can't turn off, unfortunately, is LinkedIn messages. Um, cause you have to pay. If you do pay, you can have a LinkedIn away message. Um, but what happens is people will, Oh, they can't find me by phone. They can't be find me by email. Let's message her on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, and if I could turn that off, I absolutely hundred percent would. Um, but otherwise I'm gone. Can't find me. Not to put too fine a point on this, but what do you think the magic number for paid time off offered to employees is? I'd say it probably has to be somewhere in the realm of like five weeks, maybe a little bit over 25 days a year, plus paid sick days. What do you think? If we had to put a number on it, where do you think the magic number is? I think it's probably around that. I haven't, you know, I haven't added up. I have this idea. I have a, a an idea I'd love to plant uh, for people where I feel that we should add up all the holidays. So religious holidays of the major religions and find the average number of days per year that they would celebrate so that we're not using only the Christian calendar for holidays. Mm, mm. We'd be using everybody's. And I think this would give everyone a really great number of holidays. You know, some religions have more than others. They have high holidays or minor holidays. It doesn't matter. Let's find an average. Um, and then, of course, if you have a truly diversified workplace, not everybody's going to be off at the same time, right? There's going to be different religions or or even if you're atheist, then you take the days as you wish. Um, so there's always going to be coverage. Some people are going to be working on Christmas. Some people are going to be working on Easter. Some people are going to be working during Ramadan. Um, some people are going to be working through Yom, Yom Kippur. So you always have coverage, uh, but everybody is getting a more equitable, I'd say, um, number of days off for holidays. 
And then there should be, of course, in addition, the regular stat days, your vacation days, and your paid sick days, mm-hmm. ideally. See, that's quite the seed you planted there. I like that a lot. Yeah, there, there are places like Ireland, for example, where you get where legally the minimum is four weeks of paid vacation, but there's about 12 stat holidays a year as well. So you factor all those things in together and it's like, wow, that turns into six weeks of paid vacation. Yeah, exactly. Gotta love those bank holidays, right? <laughs> yeah, gotta love a good bank holiday through and through. Well, Kelly, it's always a holiday when we get to chat with you. Thank you for making time for us this morning and we'll talk to you down the road in a couple weeks. Thanks. Feel better soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, the founder of Completely Inclusive. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti will share some thoughts on the horror series or creepy series, creepy horror series, some kind of series. Amy Amanti is going to take a bite into Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, which you can find on Netflix. But first, you don't need to head out trick-or-treating to get scared on Halloween. Dave Packer explains in Tech Trends. Whether it's a YouTube video, a short story on Reddit, or a drawing on Tumblr, there are more ways than ever for horror fans to create and consume spooky content. It is that much easier for anyone with an internet connection to share their stories, their fables, their pieces of art to the public. Samantha Culp is a writer and filmmaker in California. She says this emerging genre of online storytelling is collaborative. Anyone can build off another person's story idea. Popular examples include The Backrooms, an imagined space of dimly lit never-ending yellow hallways or the scp foundation a fictional group that secures contains and protects all things that go bump in the night it does have something very connected to the history of folklore and why do humans tell stories why do we specifically like to tell scary stories with tech trends i'm dave packer abc news Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's catch up with film reviewer Amy Amanti for her thoughts on the Netflix limited series Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you as well. Amy, this one seems to be in the theme of creepy, scary, disturbing we actually had the uh, preview clip or like the the trailer clip and we decided not to play it because it was that kind of icky and creepy. <laughs> so for somebody who wants to press play on this story about Jeffrey mm-hmm. Dahmer, what are they in for? Well, there's a certain element of creep here for sure. Uh, but this is a Netflix series that explores the motive and the methods of a well-known serial killer, um, Jeffrey Dahmer, and surrounds uh, the murders that he committed between 1978 and 1991. Um, So, I mean, like, quite a notorious serial killer. I don't know, Dave, do you remember? I mean, I was a high schooler when when Jeffrey Dahmer was was captured, Um, so I didn't know much about it then, but do you remember at all? Hearing about Jeffrey Dahmer? I mean, I was still pretty young. Uh, 1991, I was eight years old, so maybe a little young for cannibals and serial killers to be working their way into my into my uh, lexicon. But I do remember there was a huge interest in Jeffrey Dahmer around 2001 and 2000, and a pretty not-so-great movie that was made about him. But I was working at a video store at the time, and right. I ended up watching all those serial killer movies, the Ted Bundys and the Jeffrey Dahmers and the et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, for me, 
me, it came a little bit later, not around the time he got caught. Yeah, he, um, you know, again, if you're going to push play on this, I mean, for me, I, I had some background information. There was something interesting to me um, as I studied psychology in my high school years and uh, and into some of my university years, that there was an interest to me around the psychological framework that, uh, you know, the way the, the way a serial killer's mind works. Um, and what I thought was interesting about this particular film, and, and I don't think we need to go down the rabbit hole of the types of crimes maybe that, that David, uh, that Jeffrey Dahmer had committed. Um, but, um, uh, there's certainly a psychology there that is interesting. And what's interesting for me is at some point in this, in this series, so this is not a documentary, although there are several of those as well. Um, if folks are interested, the original tapes and all those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, there, there's no shortage of Jeffrey Dahmer content there's no out shortage. There. But the but what was interesting to me was um, the way Jeffrey Dahmer speaks about himself, and they capture that in this series um, where he says to the police that are I mean you wonder where they get all the information to put in a in a series in a dramatized series. It's because Jeffrey Dahmer didn't protest. He said, "Yeah, this is what I was trying to do. This is the way my mind works." And he'd say to them because his lawyers were saying, "Well, we need to plead insanity here," and he'd say. I'm, I'm not insane. I, I know what I was doing. I know. And to some extent, they made that feel quite humbling, um, which I was also kind of creepy. But I think it was kind of the um, the the method they were exploring in the in the filming of this was that to some extent, you feel like you're sitting in a chair going, oh, I kind of understand where he's coming from. And you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did I just say that out loud? Right. So. So. I have not hit play on this one yet. I don't know mm-hmm. if I will or not. I, I, I can only take so much unsettling stuff in my life. The world is already pretty unsettling for me, Amy, so yeah. I don't know how much I need to go back in time for the unsettlingness. But I've yeah. heard a similar commentary from people who've watched this, and they said especially the first two or three episodes, they were like, what are they doing here? Like, there are victims involved, and here I am yeah. empathizing with the serial killer. Yes. And I would also say, too, that, you know, for folks who don't like shows that are, you know, bloody, gutsy, gory kind of shows, this isn't really one of them. The kinds of things that that are being talked about here are they don't really show you, uh, you know, the, the dismembering of bodies or anything like it's not gory in that way. You know, if you know anything about Jeffrey Dahmer, what he's doing, there is some sort of paraphernalia around. So you're um, like, oh, yeah, I expect to see that there. or I expect to see, you know, those kinds of things. So there are there's a few scenes that you're like, wait, did I just wait? What? But in the all in all, it's not like watching a Saw movie, you know, where yeah, everything is yeah. about you know, the trauma to the human body and how extreme we can explore that. The the saws and the hostels and a lot of yeah. that torture porn that got uh, that got made exactly. in the, the, the mid-2000s that was very popular yeah. and I think for that's a long, how they long were tr- time. And I think that's how they were trying to honor some of the victims and the victims' families is not by, like, over-victimizing them on screen to some extent, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's talk about the performances here because one yeah. of the things that I've heard is that the actual acting in this is flawless. Yeah. Um, it's kind of scary how flawless. And again, I would say like in 1991, I was, I went into high school in 1990, I was born in 82. So, you know, you're what, I don't know. What is that? 13 ish. Your, your math, your math didn't work there. You said born in 82 and started high school in 91. Oh, born in, 
Oh, yeah, I went in 95, didn't I? Um, see there, my math doesn't work there. So, yeah, I was about the same age as you, eight or nine, but it wasn't until high school that, that um, so it was 94 when Jeffrey Dahmer uh, died in prison. Mm -hmm. So it was just as mm -hmm. I was entering high school. And that's for me when I was like, oh, who is this person? Because um, I think I had more of a brain to be able to understand oh yeah at, at, no. when you start approaching that age of like 13 14 like now yeah. you're curious like now the world is a place where you can actually be fascinated by these horrible things so we've got evan peters um who plays jeffrey dahmer and again like if you want to talk about flawless like at the time that he died and he was on the news and they were showing clips of interviews and stuff i I can remember back to some of that and then i did some you know youtube google searching in preparation for this to see how much Peter, uh, Evan Peters really embodied this character, this character, this human, um, and created um, a character in this show. It was quite unsettling, if I will. Um, and folks may remember um, Peters from American Horror Story. So he was quite a prominent character in, uh, in that series as well. Um, so maybe it's not too much of a stretch for him. Mm. And then we have Richard Jenkins, who plays Lionel Dahmer, who's Jeffrey Dahmer's father, and Molly Ringwald. Of all people, I haven't seen Molly Ringwald in years. Yeah, interesting. And she, and she plays Sherry Dahmer. Uh, not a huge role for Mar Molly Ringwald, but, um, you know, they wanted to capture a little bit about who Jeffrey Dahmer's parents were. Um, and again, another interesting factoid for me that popped out of this was that Lionel Dahmer, the father, uh, had noticed some things in his son as a small child and had nurtured them because he had had similar thoughts of his own. Oh my so gosh. like this is this is, you know, when they talk about uh, red flags and serial killers today, we talk a lot about like, oh, you know, if your kid's fascinated in roadkill, that could be a red sign um, and, or red flag. And so Jeffrey Dahmer was and his father was like, OK, let's go, you know, scoop up roadkill together and like explore, you know, like dissect the bodies at home, that kind of mentality. Um, because maybe Lionel Dahmer had a little bit of this in him too, but just didn't act on it. Or he wanted his son to become a vet. You know, it could it could have been it could have been that too. Let's go to, let's go to vet school. Vets vets make cash. Um, Amy, in terms of the way the story was told, as mm -hmm. as you laid it out, it looks like they're actually trying to cover quite a bit of territory yeah. in a limited miniseries. I'm curious where you think they were able to pull so much information from with all the documentaries, some fact, some fiction, and a lot of folklore around Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, I think, you know, where they canvassed most of their their information from was the archival tapes that were happening, you know, in any interrogation room. And because it wasn't like, come on, tell us what you did. Tell us what you did. We know you did this. Jeffrey Dahmer really, like, they hit play and he just he just went off like a chatty Cathy doll when you pull the string. Um, and, and told them everything, everything in as detail as they wanted. Um, he was not a person who was like uh, trying to hide his crimes. Um, so they got a lot of information from there. But then it's also about talking to families and talking to um, uh, people who had had family members go missing once they were able to identify some of the, the family members um, and having chats with those. And the neighbor next door, played by Niecy Nash, which again is like totally a, com a comedian, would never think that Niecy Nash would be in a film like this. But she plays the neighbor who, um, you know, they're living in, for all intents and purposes, a ghettoized tenement building. And so a lot of this was able to go on in this apartment building um, with smells and a whole bunch of things that you Ugh. can't even imagine. Ugh. And nobody... Uh, you know, when the neighbor complained because she was a black woman, they didn't give her any credit whatsoever. 
Yeah, that, so there's a lot of insidious racism that's happening here too, just under the surface. Yeah, th there's again not not that we want to dive too too deep into this, but there are yep. some parallels to some serial killer situations we've had in Toronto, where a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were very vulnerable people. They were people right. on the edges of society, and a lot of times from the LGBTQ plus community. But as people can imagine, between 1978 and 1991, those those were those were people on the fringes. Those were not yep. people who police were spending a lot of time investigating crimes in those communities yes and jeffrey dahmer identifies as a gay man and so of course he was finding uh finding his victims in gay bars and uh that kind of thing and you're right that that this was a, a time period where people were not out and proud and we didn't have um oh sadly like it comes under the lips of your mouth and you're like there wasn't a lot of respect for the community Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it was like, well, we're missing another gay man. What's the big deal? You know, and it's like, no, 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 you're missing another human off the planet. And what else is interesting in this, and I will say this from a disability perspective, is that one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims was a deaf man. Um, and so they have uh, deaf actors in, in one of the episodes. Um, and it's really beautiful to see how the deaf community cared for individuals that were going missing in their community and um, to see deaf people perform in this piece and um, to actually see that this was the one person that maybe Jeffrey Dahmer actually was falling in love with and had thought that this could be the person that, that changed things for him. Didn't end up being so, mm. but, um, but there is a, like a humanized quality um, around the disability experience. Cause for, for the first time, I think Jeffrey Dahmer felt seen. Amy, I want to come back to format on this for a moment before mm -hmm. we get into description and maybe something that you learned along the way in your overall impressions and thoughts on this. I want to talk about the notion of the limited miniseries. And I think we've talked yeah. about this from time to time before, but there have been some really really good ones made in the last couple of years. I think about The Queen's Gambit, which you and I both mm -hmm. really enjoyed on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I think about uh, Spike TV or Paramount Plus's Waco, about the Branch Davidians and the Waco, Texas massacre in the 1990s. That was mm -hmm. truly, truly excellent. What do you think the merits and benefits are of telling the story in a limited miniseries? I think there's a couple of things for me personally that's nice about a limited miniseries. One is, is that it gives you sort of just enough time. You know, if you're doing something in a, in a two hour sort of typical movie time frame, you can get yourself into a position where um, as a, as a watcher and a listener, you're so like, you're too bogged down with information and you, you know, or they make the film too long and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm getting tired. Right. And mm -hmm, so this kind mm -hmm. of splits things up, but also when you're dealing with content that can be difficult, it gives the listener and the viewer an, an opportunity to step back. Okay. I saw that one episode. It was an hour. I think I have to wait before seeing the next one yeah. or I'm going to binge through them all. Right. Like it gives you that kind of autonomy mm -hmm. um, to be able to do that and, and gives you this, the space to be able to share, to, to let the information unfold instead of it being sort of overwhelming. I really like the idea of a limited miniseries. The other thing I like about it too, and this is just like totally a logistical thing, which is I don't have to wait. I have to, don't have to wait between seasons for something. It's like, it's 10 episodes, it's eight episodes, it's six, whatever it is. It's a one sort of mini series and done. And yeah. I feel like that's digestible. And I don't have to, like I, some of these things that are on TV. I just like, I think about Grey's Anatomy, for example. It's in what, like, I don't know, season 18, 20? 18. Yeah, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, um, okay, this needs to like wrap itself up because 
uh, somehow I feel obligated to continue watching. <laughs> well, once once you're in, you got to keep going. That that's how it goes. I've, I've I've finished plenty of show that I've started just because I need to finish it. I need to see where it goes. Uh-huh. I, I'll eventually get back to The Walking Dead. I'll eventually get there. We'll we'll maybe not right now, but we'll see. We'll, well, it's it's ending in just a handful of episodes. So. Right. So if I can avoid the spoilers and wait for it all to drop on Netflix, and I'll just binge right through the rest of it and there you uh, go. call it a call it a day with The Walking Dead. Uh, Amy. The material here is very mature. I imagine at times rather gruesome, although you mentioned not not overly gory. Not but gratuitously h- gruesome. But how was the description? Yeah, I think the description matches the tone of the piece, um, which I think is what we ask our description to do in in certain cases. Um, I think could do probably a little better on the diversity uh, end of things, simply because... You know, we are in a in a in an area where diversity is a big factor in how and why these particular uh, crimes were able to take place. Uh, but all in all, you know, I, I was able to use the description as a useful tool to be able to follow things. Um, and uh, uh, in some cases, some things flashed by so fast visually that there, you know, like even sighted people had to sort of pause and go like, did I see that right? But yeah. the description tells me what it is. Uh, but the description doesn't say, doesn't go into great detail about what something is uh, in terms of, like it's overly gratuitous, right? So, uh, um, you know, if it was a severed limb, it would say it's a severed limb as opposed to all the different things that could be a part of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's okay. I think that that's okay. Because we can, in in some circumstances, we can imagine um, what has been done based on the information we're, we're receiving. Yeah, you only need so much to kind of put you these pieces so together. Amy, you mentioned you had some knowledge of Jeffrey Dahmer before you jumped into this. Did you learn anything over the course of yeah. watching the series? I mean, certainly, uh, because at the time I was uh, much younger, but I, I again, I, I found a fascination with this, the psychological mind and what it takes to make somebody click in this way. Um, but I think one of the things that, that was reinforced to me was, and, and it's just in a small number of scenes, but the, the how his father's involvement in this, as I touched, alluded to earlier, is that, you know, um, his father carried a, a huge amount of guilt around uh feeling like he didn't help his son because he himself had had some proclivities of thinking in this way and um and and didn't recognize that in his son and kind of ignored it um so that that was a real interest to me because i i one had never seen somebody sort of be so like vulnerably expressing that as a as a as a human um and the second thing was what fan fan favorite he he was once he was in jail that that he had would had received so many like letters and pen pals and wanted people's you know uh, uh people wanted his uh, signature on things and they would send newspapers and have him sign stuff and and he was uh, you know send him money for commissary so he became quite famous infamous slash famous but quite famous with a lot of people who were i guess all you can call them as sympathizers or people who were like just really interested in serial killers there's a whole cult following and i knew that there was some of that but i didn't realize to what extent that that had gone through um and it's again that's another fascinating component of the human experience people are fascinated and typically love uh, bad people. Uh, we don't need to look much much further than the world of politics to uh, to get that one uh, figured true. out. Um, Amy, overall, how would you rate the series? Uh, this was a really hard one for me to rate, knowing that uh, other people might want to watch it. 
I would say, um, I, I, you know, I gave it, a, I, I, for me, this is a 10. For me, this hits all of the things that I want in a miniseries, which is some fact, some creative fiction, but that isn't, you know, where, where you're watching it going, that's, there's no way that's a thing, right? Um, so that bordered that line, I think, really well. Um, and I think a, a piece that looks at all of the different, and I'm going to just call them characters, but all of the perspectives of all of the different characters in a really balanced way. Mm. And oftentimes we just get the view of, for example, the serial killer. But now we're getting Dahmer's view, we're getting the neighbor's view, we're getting the parent's view. And and in, in some circumstances, we're getting the view of the, uh, of the victim. Mm. And that's something we often don't get in these types of films. I've had this one recommended to me by a lot of people to the point that I think I may need to hit play, even though I do not want to. <laughs> uh, yeah, Amy, it's not overly gratuitous, Dave. So if that's your thing, but psychologically, it, it is quite fascinating. I, I just I, I feel like I feel like I went through my serial killer phase in the early 2000s and I and I thought I got <laughs> enough, if I'm being totally honest with you. But, yeah, I hear you. But apparently this is so like apparently this is so good that it's absolutely one that, that's worth diving into, even if it's a little outside of your. Uh, well, I want to watch Big Mouth before I get to. Dahmer, but but Dahmer might Dahmer might come first. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Amy, big, see, big bats on my list too. Ah, there you go, Amy. Thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, happy Halloween, Dave. Happy Halloween. That's Amy Manti with a review of the Netflix limited series Monster: The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. I'll just straight up tell you, parental discretion advised on pressing play on that one. Coming up after the break, I'll have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will be here with a sports chat busy world in the sports times or busy times in the sports world if you will this is now with dave brown on ami Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, October 31st, 2022. Boo! Happy Halloween. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Mark Aflalo will show off the MetaQuest Pro virtual reality headset. And the government of Saskatchewan is investing in disability employment services. Jim Crisco will have details on that. But let's begin the hour with the regional news updates. Beginning in British Columbia, where outgoing BC Premier John Horgan is reflecting on his time in office, Horgan says listening to other viewpoints has shaped him as a politician and as a person. So my advice is that uh, never uh, discount the views of other people. Uh, the only way you grow as an individual and the only way you can get a better understanding of how the broader community feels is if you're listening to other voices so i learned during the minority period that there's always something to be gained by listening to other people david eby will officially replace horgan on november the 18th over to the prairies where winter conditions hit drivers on a highway in alberta's rocky mountains yesterday rcmp say crews responded to about 20 vehicles involved in collisions or that slid off the road due to winter driving conditions on highway 93 north between lake louise and jasper late yesterday afternoon the highway was declared impassable 
Over to Ontario, where emergency departments in the Durham region say they're continuing to experience staffing shortages and high patient volumes. A statement released by Lake Ridge Health and the region of Durham Paramedic Services says it's impacting overall wait times for less acute patients and some ambulance offload times. The health units are asking those who need non-urgent medical attention to consider other options for care like walk-in clinics, primary care, or virtual care. And then finishing in the Atlantic provinces, rent hikes in PEI are on the agenda when the province's legislature returns this week. The government intends to bring in legislation that will reverse a regulator's decision, allowing increases of up to 10.8% for units heated with oil. The opposition Green Party also say in a release that they've drafted legislation that would restrict rent hikes to 1% for homes heated with oils. The Greens are also calling for a legislated cap on rent increases. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, we knew it was going to be a busy weekend in sports going in. I don't think what we knew is that tennis was going to take center stage in Canada, specifically Felix Auger-Aliassime. Yes, this was an event that... um sort of caught me off guard a little bit. I, I I had no idea that he was doing as well as he did. And he, he wins his third straight indoor event. Um, and uh, this is the recent event he wins. He wins the Swiss Indoor Championship. He This is his third straight event. He was never broke at this event at all during the competition. So that means when he served the ball, he always won his points. So he was never broke during the week. That is very, very hard to do, not to be broke once in your seven matches uh, during the week. I think that Felix is on the right path. I think that he's looking well. There was a, a bit of discussion this morning on the radio, uh, which I want to touch on in that, you know, look at the level of competition that he had to play. You know, there wasn't, there's not a lot of high level players there. Yes, but my argument to that is, okay, but you can only play the people that are in front of you, and it's building blocks, and if he can carry this into the, the you know, the big events next season, well, this is good, and, and you got to start somewhere, so big congratulations to uh, Felix Ojealiasim for winning his third straight in indoor event, and he credits this, Dave, to growing up in Montreal and playing a lot of tennis indoors due to the weather, yeah. so... Uh, that's pretty cool as well. I, I, it was sort of said as like a tongue-in-cheek, oh, yeah, it's because I play a lot indoors. But I do actually believe there's something to that, um, that, you know, that's why he does what he does and does well. So, And then a shout-out to Dennis Shapovalov, who finished second at another event. This one's called the Eastern Bank 500. He lost to Daniel Medvedev, who is currently world number one. So still very good uh, events for Canada. Again, I had no idea there was two events at one time. I I literally was like, oh, they're going to play a Canadian final. And then I learned, oh, wait, there's two separate events. So (laughs) uh, they both, both uh, Canadian athletes are doing good things and moving forward. Hopefully this translates into something good uh, for the uh, 
main events for next season. Yeah. Again, it, with, with tennis, it's always funny because these things will creep up on us, right? You get the four majors and you get the Canadian Open. Really, other than that, unless you love tennis, you're not going to watch a lot of these events. However, as you point out, building blocks are building blocks. And if you're picking up wins or second place finishes, that's a testament to playing good tennis. I also like your observation about the surfaces that you play on. It makes sense that someone who played a lot of indoor tennis is going to be good in indoor environments. It's one of the reasons why South American and Western European players play so well at the French Open because they play on clay. Clay is the more traditional surface for those individuals, whereas some folks like Americans play a lot more on hard courts than clay courts. It just stands to reason if you're used to playing on a kind of surface, you're going to be good on that surface. Well, and Dave, I'll take it a step further with my own career. And, and some people may not be aware of something like this, but we used to play on uh, hardwood floors and tiled gymnasium floors. I loved playing on tiled gymnasium floors. Why? Because we trained inside schools a lot of the time. Elementary schools, they have those tiled uh, yeah. gymnasium floors. Yeah. They're not hardwood. And so it's something so simple when you think, well, I, I preferred playing on tiled versus hardwood and some people that wouldn't be familiar look at me and go well what's the difference a floor is a floor is a floor and that's where i'd laugh and go uh not so much because a hardwood floor is a lot faster than a tiled floor because they're just done differently yeah. and so for me when i heard this indoor thing i'm like well yeah I, I can totally relate to this because i preferred tiled gymnasium floor over any other because 90 percent of my practices were on that floor exactly or surface if you want to take it that level yeah, but yeah. yeah no well observed yeah. no it's true play, play, like it, we even hear about this with ice conditions in the nhl playoffs in the stanley cup playoffs that a lot of the teams who play in warmer environments the ice is all clunky and bouncy by the by the end whereas up north it's still pretty it's still pretty solid sometimes so all of a sudden the team who's used to playing on weird ice weird bouncy clunky humid ice has that advantage late in the season Hey, who knew Phoenix uh, is apparently getting credit for a, a real good ice surface in their uh, <laughs> university stadium. And, and that, to me, is kind of hilarious. Their dressing rooms right now are a little eh, kind of yeah, weird. But that, that, was, hey. that was a big story going into the weekend <laughs> in regards to the Arizona Coyotes moving into their new arena at Arizona State University. And as you yeah. say, the reports on the ice is that the ice is quite good. Everything else, maybe uh, maybe not so much, but that's all right. That's all right. Good yeah. ice is still good ice nonetheless. And I actually am hoping to go down to a game this year uh, to go see a, a hockey game in a 5,000-person seat arena. I think that would be lots of fun. It'll take me back to when I used to work at college games. Uh, Brock, let's move on to some football recap. One of the great pleasures that I'm having this year is that I'm trying to give you some guidance into the world of college football. And I warned you on Friday that if you wanted to watch the Georgia Florida game, the largest outdoor cocktail party on earth, that it was probably going to be a one-sided game. However, it's always compelling TV when Florida and Georgia played and you had a pretty good experience watching the game. I did. I enjoyed watching the game. Um, it was very, very good uh, to watch. I mean, um, Florida obviously didn't look that good in parts of the the game. Richardson, once he kind of took that lower body hit, I noticed that he never looked the same. You know, uh, he, he just kind of never really looked to be in sync. I think that that's a lot of what took place. I think that on the other side, um, their quarterback, Fleming Jr., looked very, very 
in control of Georgia's quarterback. Yeah. He looked he looked complete opposite. He, he looked like he knew what was going on, what was happening. Now, it's easy to say that, Dave, when you're up as big as they were and you have a team that's undefeated and you are the the dog that they're chasing and, and you, you want to you know play well. But I did notice a big difference. One quarterback kind of looked out of sorts once he got that lower body hit, which was like the first or second play of the game. And mm-hmm. then he kind of hobbled off the off the field and came back and never looked the same. And when you have a lower body uh, hit in, in football, you can be sort of off balance because you, your lower half is what you use to, you know, propel yourself to, to throw the, the football. When you don't have your lower half, you're in trouble. And I think yeah. this is the case there. But, yeah, it was a great game. And I, I have to say, Dave, all of these college football games, and you, you need to keep feeding these to me, you know, for a couple more years to be able to figure out the, the landscape. But the crowds are making such a difference. I don't know what it is. It just feels like the crowds are making a little bit more than your average NFL game and some stadiums in the NFL. I don't know if it's because are they more on top of each other? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But to me, the crowds are making a huge difference for me in college football. Well, the Florida-Georgia game is actually played at a neutral site in Jacksonville where the Jaguars play, but your observation is correct. When you get a lot of these home games, you get 100,000 people all supporting the same team, like screaming their lungs out. And there's also probably some uh, pregame activities that uh, lead to the to the rowdiness. <laughs> well, well, Brock, I'm going to have another one for you on Friday. I'm actually going to have you back on the Georgia train this Friday when they play next Saturday against Tennessee, number one ranked team in the nation versus number three ranked team in the nation. So that's the one I'm going to recommend. But we'll get to that preview on Friday. Let's go back to the NFL on Sunday. Brock, the Philadelphia Eagles beat up on the Pittsburgh Steelers and remain the only undefeated team in the NFL. I believe this team is the real deal. I do I do sort of have trouble uh, viewing them as one of a Super Bowl contenders in uh, the, the NFC. I just, I don't know. And it, it's hard to put it into words when a team's undefeated to say that. But I just, I wonder about them. And maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way. You know, they're undefeated. They haven't lost all good. But I, I'm just not sure when they get up against, the, you know, the big, big, big teams, when push comes to shove, whether you're going to get it in or not. Do you have any kind of feeling on that? Or do you believe in what this team is doing? And I know what I'm saying is hard to say when you're talking about an undefeated team. I just, it's just a feeling I have. I truly believe there are no other good teams in the NFC. So the two other good teams in the NFC are the Dallas Cowboys, who they beat, and the Minnesota Vikings, who they destroyed. I think Philadelphia is legit. They've made a lot of great draft picks in the last couple of years, and the trade to bring in A.J. Brown to bolster their wide receiver core has totally changed their offense. They have him running big, incredible downfield routes. They have Devonta Smith, who's making incredible catches. He only had 23 yards yesterday on five catches, but he was always open. This Philadelphia team is so good because they're built well in the trenches and have talent everywhere else in the skill positions. They're going to be a tough, tough out. You talk about who's a team that can challenge them. It's all going to come from the other conference. There's nobody in the NFC who I believe can actually challenge the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, which means you're only looking at one game of being, if that's hold true, it means you're only looking at the Super Bowl of the AFC holding them accountable, which maybe, I mean, I, I've been watching some NFC games, and and I do agree. There's not really a team that 
you know, I look at it and I go, yeah, that, that team's going to be the one. I thought at the beginning of the year uh, the Rams were going to be that team. I, I, I've not seen it this year. Yeah. I've seen them go exact backwards. San Francisco 49ers, yeah, okay, they beat the Rams. But, again, that's not a legitimate team. Like, you're right. There isn't a team that we can all point to and go, yeah, this is the team. And maybe that's part of what I'm looking at is I'm looking at this going, is this undefeated thing real when you look at the level of competition minnesota's a good team yeah but they took care of they business destroyed there, them. You, they destroyed as you them. mentioned yeah and so we'll see um but i think there is going to be some uh tough tests going to be taking place in the afc uh the bills the chiefs those kind of teams are going to are yeah. going to make a run there for oh, sure. The, and the AFC Brock, the AFC is just incredible between the bills and the chiefs, between the Ravens and the Bengals. I'm even going to throw my, my, my terrible dolphins in there who had a super entertaining game yesterday against Detroit. There are some really good teams in the AFC, the NFC, other than the Cowboys and the Vikings, it all looks like trash right now. The 49ers, they, they did some stuff yesterday. Christian McCaffrey, the first player since 2005 to run for a touchdown throw for a touchdown and receive a touchdown in the same game. That's uh that's pretty cool. But other than some weird gimmicks in San Francisco, I don't know that there's a lot that's going to be coming for the Philadelphia Eagles. Brock, let's uh, let's leave football for now and move over to the world of baseball. There'll be lots more time for football talk over the course of this week yes, there with, will. A, with a really good Thursday game and looking into next weekend. But let's get to the World Series, which gets going again tonight with the series all tied up at one. The Houston Astros starting games really hot but they're letting things slide a little bit yeah they are and and you know uh justin verlander um looked good to start the game and then things just fell off i i'm gonna say this and i know everyone loves dusty baker and i'm but i'm gonna say this i i do not agree with the way dusty baker managed game one i I think Dusty Baker managed more so that uh, Justin Verlander could get the win versus his team getting the win. He's never going to admit that, but that's the feeling that I had. I was just like, yeah, it feels like you're managing to help your pitcher get a win to get the monkey off the back, which I appreciate if we're in a, you know, uh, a lead where no one can catch. But in, in a playoff game, this just goes to show you that this is not the way uh, to manage. I love Dusty Baker. I just don't like the way that he, he managed game one. Uh, then you had um, Mr. Consistent in game two from Bervald Valdez, who yeah. just, I mean, his curveball was ridiculous. Like he, he could have literally been like, Hey, I'm going to throw my curveball," and no one was touching it. Like he could have said, I'm going to throw it inside and you're not hitting it. So uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Something else that came out of uh, game two, uh, Dave, and I can't remember the umpire's name off the top of my head, but uh, the home plate umpire called a perfect game with balls and strikes. And this is the second time he's done it. There was another time uh, where he was 99.5% uh, on it. He almost had two complete games. And what that means is since they've been taking statistics with that little box that everyone loves to hate, uh, <laughs> he was he was calling balls and strikes the way it is. And I love umpires that do that. Don't yep. insert yourself in a game. Just call balls and strikes the way they should be. And it made for a wonderful game uh, to watch. Uh, so game three goes tonight in Philadelphia, which is uh, looking very good. Noah Syndergaard on the mound. 
and Lance uh, McCullers. It's yeah. on the mound as well. So very good pitching matchup. Philadelphia is going to be rocking. I don't think one team's going to win three games. I do think we're going to go back to Houston for at least one more. That's yeah. just my take at this point. It's been four games in a row that Philadelphia falls behind in these games, and they came back in three of them. Not so much lucky on Saturday, but they, they need to clean that up a little bit. You can be the comeback kids to a certain extent, but at a certain time, you have to say, we cannot keep coming from behind over and over and over again. Especially we have, not we have in to a dig, World Series. Yeah, we have, we have to dig our own hole. for put, put, put another team in a hole for once. Yeah. And not in a World Series when the team is is should be as good as you. You're, you're never going to be able to dig yourself out of th- that to win a World Series. Like yeah. if they go down in a, in a clinching game, I'm sorry, this Houston's going to shut it down yeah. with the with the way their pitching staff is. And Verlander will get a win when he <laughs> starts again. I'm sure okay. of it. He's just <laughs> too good not to get a win. Yeah. But Owen yeah. six, Owen six, and World Series starts for Justin Verlander. Mm. Fraud. Uh, Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. That's Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Let's bring in Mike Ross. Mike's at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. We will begin your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. It's mainly sunny there with a high of 12 degrees. Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, sunny with a high of 15 St. John, New Brunswick has a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 16 degrees. Quebec City, increasing cloudiness through the day. You've got a high of 11. Toronto, cloudy with a 60% chance of showers. And I can tell you, east of Toronto right now, showers are happening. It's a high of 11 degrees there. Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 16. Brandon, Manitoba will be sunny today with a high of 14. In Regina, Saskatchewan, mainly sunny, the high 10 degrees. Let's go to Alberta next. Lethbridge, mainly cloudy and a high of 15. Red Deer, mainly cloudy, the high there, plus 5. To Whitehorse in Yukon, flurries, about 2 centimeters in total. The temperature falls to minus 8 later in the day. The wind chill, minus 15. Let's go to BC next. Kelowna will have a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 13. And in Vancouver, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 12 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up after the break, Marco Flalo will show off the Meta Quest Pro virtual reality headset going into a different reality with Marco Flalo. This is, this is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's jump into the world of virtual reality. There's a new virtual reality headset out there put out by Meta. It's the Meta Quest Pro. And Marco Flalo of Double Tap TV doesn't just have his hands on it. It's on his head. Of course, you can find Double Tap TV Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI TV. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. This is my costume, okay? So I need to describe to people that my goal today was to be Steve Jobs. 
But I don't have a black turtleneck. I do have jeans, and I don't have those glasses. So I replaced the glasses for a VR headset. And not only that, it's actually kind of an AR headset. We'll get into that. But in true Steve Jobs fashion, we're going to do a live demo that may go completely wrong. Okay. So I just want to preface this, that this is the first time that we're going to try and do a VR demo on the show and I'm going to walk you through the entire process. So this is really exciting. I know we talked about this in our post-show meeting on Friday. I'm like, there's no way he can do a demo with virtual reality. It's <laughs> impossible. And I guess in your world, impossible is nothing. We can definitely a take, a, take a crack at this. Before you give us the full walkthrough here, Mark, maybe just tell me a little bit why this product is so compelling and why it seems to have captured the interest of so many people. Well, it's compelling because it really does blend uh, or blur the line between augmented reality and virtual reality. Because augmented reality is really putting VR into your existing space and overlaying it onto your world. And the way Meta is doing it uh, is they're making it a little bit more consumer friendly in terms of the price point, but they're also doing it in terms of you know just the way that you interact with the world. And this is why when I show you exactly the, the, the Meta Horizon workspace that I'm actually sitting in right now, I don't even see you, I'm seeing a workroom that I'm gonna demo for you in a second that is just, it is, it is super ultra cool. And, and caveat, not entirely accessible, but there is an accessibility POV here that we can talk about. Okay, okay, let's let's get into what you want to <laughs> show off here in regards to this okay. demo, and then we'll drive into that accessibility POV because I did have a chance to try the Oculus Quest a couple of well last year and was drawn to it, but also found it to be rather inaccessible. But before we get to the accessibility side, let let's jump into what you want to show off here. Okay, well, let me actually jump in to change the screen and show you what I'm seeing. So right now on the screen, you should, if I kind of peer out of my eye, you yep, see what yep. I'm seeing, mm -hmm. okay? And I'm in a workspace. I'm in this beautiful workroom. There's a desk with four chairs at the table. Uh, you actually see pass-through to what's on my physical table in front of me. And when I point at something and pinch my fingers, just like this, I can control the environment around me. Now, because this is a workspace, it's meant and targeted at small business. So if you wanted to have a meeting and invite someone from the real world in, you could do something like, I don't know, look to your left and on your screen, have a Stephen Scott waving right there at you like he's oh in gosh. the room and having a conversation. So I'm at this virtual conference table and there's a beautiful environment around me. I see my actual desktop that, that mimics my physical desktop. I'm able to draw it. I can I can show you a pass through again, and you see what's actually on my desk. So I can see if I had a keyboard here, I could actually use my keyboard, and I can actually click the computer view and connect to my physical computer that's behind me, and it'll actually display on my screen like it's in front of me here. Oh I'm my gosh. Desktop in front of me here and I can interact with it. So the idea here is that I see my keyboard on the desk and I can actually do things. This goes a little crazier because you can add multiple desktops, but we won't get into that because that's completely inaccessible. The other demo I wanna show you that's really cool about this is because this is designed to have, you know, let's say three other people at the desk in VR form. So they'll kind of see your avatar. And notice that, you know, when I turn off the pass-through mode, you're seeing virtual hands in front of me. I have virtual hands that are kind of in the world that are mimicking my actual movements. Mm -hmm. A cool feature of this environment, which makes it really kind of special, is a whiteboard. So I'm gonna click on the whiteboard view. I'm gonna hit, con you know, continue. I'm gonna take one of these wands, these controllers, these VR controllers, and turn to my right and stand up. And I'm going to see in front of me a virtual whiteboard that I can then take my controller with and draw things on like this. 
I can actually draw pictures, I can write words, I actually feel haptic feedback when I'm actually typing on it or writing on it rather. Oh, that's I can trippy. Colors, et cetera, et cetera. But for this purpose, I'm gonna actually get out of it and go back to the go back to the desk because it's, you know. And for anybody who's wondering, Mark didn't actually draw anything that was all squiggles. It was, yeah, okay, it was all squiggles, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to go back to my desk mode, and I'm back in my room here. And, you know, this is just a really a little taste. Stephen's still there, by the way. You can wave to Stephen on my left. Um, I'm going to switch, though, to, to my front point of view and take the headset off for a second so I can breathe. Now, important to note, that was super comfortable. This was not heavy on my head. The design of this new headset is really, really balanced. It is kind of like the existing VR headsets that where you have this front immersive screens, two, two screens in front of your eyes, but they put the battery pack on the back so it adds a nice amount of weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your head to hold it in place, they have pads on the front and the back that allow it to kind of rest on your head, almost like a baseball cap without the cap portion. Of course, like any other VR headset, it comes with the actual hand controllers. I, there's a name for these that I'm, I'm escaping me right now. But these allow you to navigate the VR world if you don't want to use your hands, which is pretty cool. And, and the interesting thing about this version, the MetaQuest Pro, is that everything's rechargeable. It comes with a nice little base station that I'm going to show you right here. Everything sits nicely into the base station. It's a round disc that everything just kind of falls into with magnetic points that the controllers sit in, the headset sits right into and it charges. And this is a super important because the battery life on this is only about two hours. Right. So this is something that you're gonna sit in eight hours a day enjoying this VR experience. That being said, as I was preparing for this and kind of waiting for you guys, I was having a conversation with Steven, sitting back in my chair, leaning back, looking at him on that screen virtually. Um, he wasn't able to see my avatar because I haven't set that part up yet. But this really does show the purpose of, of this kind of VR experience and where they're going with it. They're going for this kind of business point of view where you can collaborate on not only you know, things on a whiteboard, but make you feel like you're in one place as opposed to remote. And the timing, I think, is impeccable because of obviously the state of the world today. I mean, if you look back at the last two years, if it wasn't for this pandemic, I don't think we would be at the same position in life. Right, right. For so long the prospect of these Oculus headsets was almost strictly in video gaming, right? That was, that yeah. was where the fun yeah. was. That's, that's where the market was. But what you're proposing here and what Meta is proposing is that we're actually going to be creating more and more of this digital space. There are people buying real estate in the metaverse right now. This is, I and mean, this is exactly it. Now, you still can game on this. You can still play those Beat Sabers and those interactive VR games. That being said, the design of this is a little bit different where it's not completely immersive in terms of blocking out everything in front of you. You can add these magnetic blinders that literally look like horse blinders on the side, and those do block out majority of light, but it's not really intended for that. It's really intended to be this gateway into this consumer-friendly version of the metaverse that people expect. Now, of course, a lot of people are asking, what about accessibility here? Now, obviously on the visual side of things, not terribly accessible to people with low vision. If you have a little bit of vision, you can definitely enhance the environment around you and make it a much more immersive experience. But I think this is where binaural or spatial audio is really gonna come into play here. That situation where I'm sitting at a desk with Steven Scott, because it knows the position I'm at and where he's at, 
that audio is playing to me out of the left side. So I know that Steven is to the left of me. And as people are sitting at the table, it actually targets that audio from where they're sitting at that table. And you can reconfigure that table if you want to work within your space. So just imagine the kind of immersive experiences you could, let's say you're walking down the virtual street or the virtual marketplace. You can hear the hustle and bustle of traffic driving by, people from different ends that allow you to walk to different you know, vendors, for example. Mm. So this kind of really does get the mind going and thinking about you know, the whole metaverse concept or just this immersive being able to be sitting at home but go into another world concept really is taking some kind of form here. And, you know, much as much as we bash Facebook slash Meta for privacy issues and all the stuff that we've, you know, experienced over the past couple of years, they're the first ones really to jump in this game at a consumer level. Right. There is Microsoft HoloLens. There is, you know, uh, Google Glass and stuff like that that tried, but not at this price point. So let's talk about price points, because for a while I was looking at getting one of the Oculus headsets. In the end, I decided not to. 2022 was an expensive year for me. But what if I want to jump into this new generation? What's that going to cost me? So, I mean, it always sounds a lot cheaper when you talk about the U.S. price, which is $1599. Obviously, in Canadian dollars, because of exchange rate and inflation, we're looking at about $2,200. Your, your nearest competitor, the HoloLens, is, you know, 3500 4000 retail. Um, you know, Google Glass isn't even available. If it is, it's not even a comparable experience. Right, right. That being said, though, think about that, that you're paying about the same price for your phone these days. Although the Oculus Quest is still going for like $500. Exactly. And, and you, the, the cool thing is you can still use that Quest to get into experiences like this. Just not the immersiveness, if that's even a word I'm making. Right, up now, right. Um, of of this experience with the augmented reality, with the cameras passing through, with that seamless experience that is trying to trying to extend into your vision. It it feels like when we're talking about any of these emerging areas of tech, whether it be self driving cars or virtual reality, it is going to take a lot of broad based buy in before it can really be viable, though. And, and I think that you know by making it fun by introducing the gaming side of the, the Quest and the Quest 2. I think that was a good barrier to entry. It helped people kind of get over it and let the kids get into it. And, and then parents put it on and like, oh, this is kind of cool. And now by, by releasing something that still does that, but also has a couple of these business components that seem kind of interesting. Yeah. And not only that, but to get companies like Zoom, companies like Microsoft to really endorse it, yeah. really, yeah. themselves. That's a, big, that's a big thing because there's, they know that there's been trust issues with Facebook and Meta over the past five years. They know they screwed up. And, you know, when they announced this about a month ago at that keynote, Mark Zuckerberg intentionally had Satya Nadella from Microsoft there to help him endorse it. Not not as much to say as, look, hey, Microsoft's on board. But I think it was more of a, if they trust us, you should trust us. Yeah. Without saying that. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, when I, when I tried it last year, I was leery. I was like, oh, this isn't going to be any fun at all. And then as soon as I figured it out, I was like, this is super fun. This is super great. This is super yeah. cool. And I've not ruled out buying one because that boxing game, I was obsessed. Like, I fist fought a computer. It was great. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, Stephen Scott loves driving around his his truck with the steering wheels <laughs> and pedals does. with a giant screen in front of him. Imagine putting on the headset, doesn't he have to worry about it? And this is the other thing, too, is the, the mobile workforce is going to be extremely empowered because you can be running this. This is running off the desktop that's behind me, but I can be running this off, a, you know, a Microsoft Surface, you know, a single laptop, and I can bring up three screens in front of me yeah. and get so much more done. I could be on a plane doing that. I could be on a beach doing that. I could be in a condo doing that. So I don't need all this stuff around me anymore. I just need the headset. I need my computer, and I'm set. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a really cool point. Hey, Mark, thank you for this. Thank you for giving us this demo. That was really cool. That went super well. My pleasure. I'm glad it went well. The Steve Jobs costume was working out. <laughs>
<laughs> Mark Aflalo, Steve Jobs, same kind of guy. That's Mark Aflalo. He's the host of Double Tap TV, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, we talk Halloween snacks. What are the go-tos with the sweet, the salty, and the chocolate? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Halloween edition of the show. So let's talk about the sweets, treats, and snacks that go along with Halloween. And we'll do that with Nizreen Abdel-Majid, Mike Ross, and Eliza Rocco. Hey, good morning, Nizreen. Good morning. And hello once again, Mike. Hey, Dave. And Eliza, thank you for stepping in on this one as well. So guys, the scenario is simple. We are going out trick-or-treating. Now, obviously, we're too old to do that now. I, I was six feet tall and had facial hair at 12 years old, so uh, trick-or-treating end, ended for me fairly fairly early in the process. But we're breaking this down into three categories. In your sack, what do you want to get? Starting with candy. I would vote for the Skittle or the Twizzler. Nazreen, what do you want in your Halloween sack? I always got excited for Starburst or the Skittles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the fruity tropical flavors. Mike, what about you? Uh, I was always big on the grape or banana flavored Laffy Taffy. That was one of my favorites. And I also like the the Rockets candies. Oh, yeah. But, but caveat. They had to be I, – I, I don't know why some of them were rock hard and some of them would like just sort of crumble <laughs> with a little bit of a bite. I like the ones that would crumble. I didn't like sitting there sucking on this hard candy for hours that just wouldn't break up. I like the fact that it would break up like that. Uh, some of them were just would go all powdery yeah. in your mouth. That was, that was fun. I might, like those. Might have to do with the fact that like their packaging wasn't exactly universal. There was a lot of air getting into those. So you never knew when those rockets came off the assembly line. I think also it, it was just that it was sort of a universal candy, right? So you had the rockets, you had the brand name of the rocket, but then you also had sort of the knockoffs. Yeah, yeah. And I think the rockets the generally rock had the rockoffs, if you will. This exactly the not the rockoffs, terrible consistency. The rockets, <laughs> you're getting you're getting what you pay for. Every now and then we do one of these topics, and Eliza gets in my ear and says, "I have opinions on this, so we have to bring her in." Eliza, when it comes to the candy side of this, what do you want in your Halloween bag? I love rockets too, Mike. Like they are the ultimate, the classic candy. But I have to go with those little packs of Sour Patch Kids or. I don't remember what the other ones are. Fuzzy peaches. Yes, fuzzy peaches. Any of those. Swedish berries. Swedish berries. That's what I was thinking of. Those are my go-to. I, I was overjoyed whenever I saw oh, some of those. If the, I, Maynard, the Maynard mm, classics yeah, right yeah. there. Yeah. Ooh, if I ever got one of those gummy bears, like one of the little things of gummy bears in my bag, I'd also be very excited about that. But This, but, year's, this year's box of Maynards, because I've got one to give out tonight, actually has the Swedish fish in it, ooh. which is which is good. Unless you get hosed and you end up opening it and it's the yellow Swedish fish. Yeah, Those are, yeah. Nobody wants the yellow okay. ones. Come on now. <laughs> I Green, like, red, orange. 
I like it's them fine, all. I like, I like them all. Any, yeah. All the gummies. Give me all the gummies. I like the gummies. I'm almost willing to change my answer off Twizzlers and Skittles just to get my hands on some gummies. Eliza, staying with you, chocolate. What kind of chocolate do you want in the bag? Honestly, I'm not too picky about chocolate. I will take every single chocolate they give me, and I will eat all of them. But I really like O. Henry bars, mm. anything with, like, nuts in them. Oh, just the best. But my, my top answer, my favorite candy, my favorite chocolate of all time, M&M peanuts. Yeah. Oh, um, something about them. And I think you may find a partner with Nizreen Abdelmajid on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you already know that I would get excited about the M&M packs, whether it's the peanuts or the regular. So good. I think that would be my favorite. And then it comes down to Kit Kat or actually any type of chocolate I'm down for. Yeah. As long as it doesn't have. No, no, I'm down for anything. Yeah. I, I, I like the I like the Nestle chocolates, like the Aero Bars, the Smarties, the yes. Kit Kat, the Coffee Crisp. I loved when I got one of those. Dave. I got an extra pack for myself instead of, you know, I, I got a pack for, you know, giving out to the kids today, but also a pack for myself on the side. Yeah. Nazreen, is this your first Halloween in Guelph? Do you know what you're expecting tonight? Are you expecting a lot of kids at the house? We actually moved the day before Halloween okay, last year. Okay. So we did give out candy and introduced ourselves while people were coming by our house, nice. which See, was nice. That's how you welcome yeah. yourself to the neighborhood the day before Halloween. <laughs> Come on by. We've got candy. Come meet us. Mike, what about you? When it comes to the chocolate, what are you wanting in your bag? Well, first and foremost, I got a bone to pick with Mars because I opened our box. Well, actually, my wife opened the box of chocolates, uh, and the first thing she pulled out was an empty M&M bag. It's oh, like, come on. no. Come on. Now there's, like, there's supposed to be 65 kids enjoying these candies. Now there's only 64. Mars, you got to answer to that one kid who's going to come to my door tonight and will not get a pack of M&Ms. I'm sending them <laughs> to Mars. How dare I'm you. not dealing with those with those tears. Uh, but if it was mine, the thing I remember most about Halloween when I was a kid was getting chocolate bars that you really didn't usually buy for yourself or that your parents wouldn't buy for mm. you. Because we didn't have a lot. We didn't eat a lot of chocolate as kids. But when you go out on Halloween and you'd get – that crispy crunch bar oh, yeah. or that Nestle crunch bar or, you know, the uh, Mr. Is, Mr. Is big. It, well, no, I wasn't big on Mr. Big, but the wonder bar, you know, the one that had the carrot, the, uh, the sponge toffee yep. wrapped in yep. chocolate. Love that one. And those are the ones that you would really only get in your Halloween bag. So arrow was great. Kit Kat coffee crisp right at the top of my list but i loved getting candy and chocolate especially that you normally wouldn't get from your parents yeah the off the board chocolate yeah i get that oh one. yeah mike i'm staying with you here because every now and then you get some salty in the halloween bag as well some pretzels or some chips how do you feel about getting something salty in there the chips were awesome i mean let's face it uh i wasn't big on the barbecued chips like just give me a nice plain salty regular chip usually it would come uh i think it was hostess that made that you'd, you'd buy the hostess box or the lays box and you'd get that little bag yeah little now, teensy course, bag of lays yeah the, the thing that stunk with that was you got three chips yeah right it's like okay give me two of those bags please please give me two of those bags because otherwise like this isn't even i don't even think you could call it a snack 
if you're only having three chips, right? It's barely a Lay's commercial. You can't eat just one. No, I can eat three. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was I was big on the chips. The rest of the salty stuff, eh? There's no room for it in uh, in my Halloween bag. Oh, a little bag of pretzels would go a long way for me, Eliza. What about you? When it's time for something salty, what are you going for? I'm also team pretzels. That is just like my favorite kind of chip kind of thing. But when I was I was trick or treating, I was always a little bit upset when I got chips. When I when I set out to trick or treat, I'm going for the chocolate. I'm going for the candy. I'm not going for like Mike said the three chips in the tiny bag. <laughs> That's not what I want. But you know, it, it's nice I, I guess to have the contrast of the saltiness. But what it's what not about what I'm pop? There for. What about oh, pop cans? I, I remember. That too. Really? Oh man! I just thought that was always great because you get home and you just crack open a can of pop. Is a can of coke? Into your can. <laughs> oh my gosh! That's like, that's for sure coming from the bachelor Dave Brown household, where it's like, oh darn it, I don't have any candy. Who wants some Coke Zero? That's classic. I saw a meme today uh, of a, a a guy who said that, you know, times are tough right now. Inflation's high. Rent costs a lot. So he's actually going to charge kids for the candy. So it was X, <laughs> I think it was 25 cents for uh, like the individual candy, 50 cents if you get into the chocolate. And if you want a handful, it was 375. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Uh, Nazreen, not to leave you out of the salty side of this conversation, what about some chips or some pretzels or something else salty in the bag? I was going to say, you guys have interesting neighbors because I don't remember the pop cans or anything like that. But chips, <laughs> yeah, I agree with Eliza and Mike where you're opening up the bag, it's mainly air. I mean, give me three bags of chips, I'm fine with it. But I mainly go for the chocolate regardless i don't eat gelatin so it's really hard to get the candy because i don't i pick out the pieces right but i prefer chocolate is sweet over salty sweet yeah. over salty halloween it's like valentine's day it's a chocolate holiday you know we, we, we can have there's yeah. plenty of other days to be eating all the salty food there's no doubt about that i want to thank all of you guys for uh for your candor on this one uh nazreen happy halloween good luck handing out candy tonight Thank you. You too. Mike, same to you. Hope the kids in the neighborhood uh, leave happy with no empty bags of M&Ms. I am on uh, toilet papering patrol as of <laughs> 7 o'clock tonight. Giving out good candy to avoid it. And Eliza, you're like me. You live in a condo, so uh, no, no trick-or-treating for us. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my building uh, did this thing where they're like, if you just want to donate some candy to the front desk, people can just grab candy at the front desk. I'm like... I'm not going to be doing that. I'm not going to. You need be doing to do that. you need to do what we did the first several years that we were in our neighborhood and you were getting new people moving in, you know, on the block and stuff every year. So we would do a community barbecue. So I'd roll the barbecue out to the front lawn and then everybody brought something. Somebody bring the drinks, somebody bring dessert, somebody bring uh, you know, the chips, whatever. I I brought the, the the dogs and the buns and we would have we would actually be giving parents hot dogs as they were coming through with their kids. Nice. Because they probably didn't have a chance to eat. And the kids are too excited to eat anyway. Yeah. So we'd feed we'd feed the parents. And it was just great for neighborhood sort of community. And uh, miss those days because now all those kids have grown up, moved out, and uh, we don't have that same sort of draw here yeah. anymore. Yeah. We might get like 30 kids here tonight. So it's, it's, it's too bad. It's but. so funny how the demographics in a neighborhood can change like that, right? That is once a very young family neighborhood can become an old neighborhood so, so quickly. 
it takes a while for it to reset. Our, ours is going to start to reset now. Like we've got younger kids around our house now. So I'm, we're starting to see it sort of reset as younger. Uh, th- those kids who've moved out are moving back and yeah, other, yeah. other young people are moving and having, having kids. So I think it's very cyclical, but it, it's probably about, you know, a 15 to 20 year turnover. Yeah. Mike, thank you for this. Well, we'll be talking to you quite a bit over the next few days as you're filling in for Alex while he's in Aruba. So uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. You got it. That's Mike Ross. That was also Eliza and Nazreen. There, you may have noticed, no Rumya today. That's okay. There's still an edition of Kelly and Company coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI Audio. Today they ask a simple question. Why does a democratic country like Canada need a civil liberties organization? Daniel McLaughlin will tell you why. That's Kelly and Company coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, the government of Saskatchewan is investing in disability employment services. Jim Crisco has the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's head out to Western Canada to catch up with Jim Crisco, a content development specialist for AMI in Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. Jim, you might be in Edmonton, but your stories come from Saskatchewan today. Well, sort of, in the sense that a disability advocate from Prince Albert made their way to Ottawa to talk about the disability benefit, the Canada Disability Benefit. So what issues was this advocate raising at Parliament Hill? Well, this uh, this advocate is um, uh, she's from Prince, Prince Albert, as you said, and she was raising the uh, the issue of supporting. Um, well, she was supporting Bill C C twenty two, which is in in the House right now, uh, and they're having a look at it. But she was the the, the overall issue is uh, poverty poverty in the disability community and the lack of access uh, to funds, and she she actually had a a. a she she herself is living a, an example of it that she was on she's from Saskatchewan so she's on SED which is this uh, Saskatchewan um, uh, disability fund uh, disability uh, support and um, it's actually uh, Saskatchewan assured income for persons with disabilities is what it's what it is but as soon as she went into enrolled in school and went into university uh, they cut her off of that because she's not eligible anymore. So if she wants to go back on it, she has to leave school, which just doesn't seem like a very good choice either way. Mm-hmm. Why is it mm-hmm. not continuing uh, when she's trying to better herself? Right. Uh, so, no, that that's a huge issue, right? If I'm going to school to potentially get a better job and give myself opportunities in life, why is it that I lose my support during that time? So what did she have to say about the Canada Disability Benefit? Well, she said... Um, what she what she says basically is that it's the best opportunity or one of the best opportunities uh, to to benefit Canadians uh, with disabilities and give them an opportunity to thrive. So what it, what it would be, and I, I was looking over the uh, the actual proposed bill, and and um, I didn't see any specific numbers in it. But once again, I didn't get all the way through it either. Uh, but what it what it will do is is actually supplement the income so people have a better chance of living you know above the poverty line of education of um furthering their circumstance uh potentially and that's what she sees in it mm-hmm. she sees that it's a it's a really good opportunity 
to, to help level the playing field and really to just give people opportunities to thrive. Jim, it's not your fault you couldn't find a number because there is no number. They're still talking about creating the framework <laughs> with this legislation. There's still a whole bunch of consultation that has to go on with provinces as to what that number will be and whether or not there's going to be clawbacks. But certainly it's, yeah. it's good to see the community rallying around C-22 because it does serve a clear, clear need that we've seen, which is tremendous poverty across the community. Speaking of that, Jim, and staying in Saskatchewan, the government of the province announced a nearly $11 million in funding to disability employment and career services. So, Jim, we've only got about 90 seconds on the clock here, but who's going to be getting some of this money? Well, some of the places that are getting it, I'll, I'll list off some of the organizations and uh, very familiar, some of them are very familiar for from Saskatchewan. Saskabilities, um, which is, uh, they uh, provide personalized career and employment services. Independent Futures, um, which uh, operates enhanced employment services uh, for adults and students. Um, Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada, very familiar with that mm-hmm. one, of course, uh, with, who also provide career and employment services. And the Neil Squire Society, um, so that delivers programming to assist adults with disabilities. So all, all of them extremely, extremely valuable resources to the community. Uh, this is money that's being put specifically into helping people gain employment uh, or uh, get the skills or the sometimes it's the um, the equipment that they need in order to gain employment. So it's uh, it's really, I'm sure, well received in the in, in, with these organizations and within the community in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hey, Jim, I'm sorry that we had to hustle you through today. The uh, <laughs> no ti- time is time is finite, as we know. Well, it's actually infinite, but we'll never have <laughs> enough of it. But that doesn't yeah. mean we're not talking to you again before the week's over because you're going to be part of the news quiz tomorrow. Absolutely. It's it's always a humbling experience. Dave. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that seems to be the general theme for anybody we drag into this. So, Jim, you have a great 24 hours, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. Take care. That's Jim Crisco, a content development specialist for AMI, joining us from Edmonton, Alberta. As mentioned, the news quiz is tomorrow. Mike Ross, Jim Crisco, and Karen McGee being put to the test. The show starts at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.